Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wall. On May 27th, 2021, I received a late night text from my friend and colleague, Dr. Stuart Bartlett, an astrobiologist and complexity scientist at Caltech. His message that night contained an image, a plot comparing the statistical complexities of the planets Earth and Jupiter. Accompanying this figure was a simple caption, Oh yeah, baby. Because I was familiar with Stuart's scientific quest, one glance at this plot and I knew immediately. This was it. This was the culmination of years of hard work by Stuart and his team of planetary scientists. This was a result that might point us towards a new way of characterizing strange new worlds and looking for life. As often happens in science, it takes many months between an initial discovery and when the discovery makes its way out into the public. It takes time for researchers to write up their results, then it takes more time for other researchers to vet those findings through the process of peer review. Stewart's paper, titled Assessing Planetary Complexity and Potential Agnostic Biosignatures Using Epsilon Machines, was finally published on February 7th, 2022. Complexity is something that we all have an intuitive grasp for. Chess is a more complex game than tic-tac-toe. The stock market rises and falls in complex ways. My relationship is complicated. But despite this colloquial sense that we all have, very few people agree on a definition of complexity how to measure it, how to ask in a quantitative way. Is Earth more complex than Jupiter? It's the same sort of thing as life. There is no definitive definition of this phenomenon of life, yet we generally agree on it when we see it, and there is a consensus that life is a complex system of many interacting components doing things that exceed the sum of its parts. And so in this episode of Strange New Worlds, we're beaming Dr. Stuart Bartlett back aboard to talk about his new paper, The Connections Between Complex Systems and Living Systems, how he measures planetary complexity, and how this might help us find alien life. Engage. Well, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast, Stuart. Thank you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's always awesome to talk to you. Um, and yeah. this time I've asked you back because of some exciting news. You recently published a paper in the high-profile journal Nature Astronomy called mm. Assessing Planetary Complexity and Potential Agnostic Biosignatures Using Epsilon Machines. And basically, yeah. in a nutshell, this paper offers 
the scientific community a brand new way of searching for life in the universe. So this is really, really exciting <laughs> and the type of thing that we always love to talk about on Strange New Worlds. Um, so as, yeah, <laughs> as your friend and colleague, I've actually known about the existence of this work for a long time. I, I know that it's many years in the making. So how does it yeah. feel to have it finally put out there into the world? It's unbelievable and surreal at the same time. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a huge relief. Uh, it's a great feeling. And I sometimes wonder how I got here because coming from that childhood position of watching Star Trek and being influenced by all those incredible ideas, and then one day realizing that my job, at least partly, is to look for aliens. And I'm like, wow, that is amazing because I, I mean, I'm so grateful that that is the position I've ended up in. But I'm also surprised because I didn't really plan for this to happen. But maybe, maybe, maybe there was, you know, all these sort of subconscious forces compelling my, I mean, since I've been so interested in these things for so long, and it just sort of compelled this fusion of being interested in physics, and then trying to understand life in the universe. So it's been a, a very interesting journey. And um, yeah, I feel very fortunate to have ended up on this on this trajectory i actually was somewhat skeptical of this idea at the beginning because there was no guarantee that it would work at all as a way of assessing planetary complexity it was more just like a loose connection at the beginning and then as we uncovered more results and refined our technique and we saw that there was definitely some power in this technique it was a really nice unfolding story very satisfying very gratifying so it's awesome to be in this position where we can now present the ideas to the world and see what other people think and I'm sure a lot of the great minds in astrobiology will have new ideas of how to adapt it and test it and develop it and so um it's great to be at the end of one journey and at the beginning of the next. <laughs> yeah, because you've been interested in complex systems for longer than you've been publishing on biosignatures, right? I know you've studied mm. convective systems and ice crystal formation. Those are highly complex, but they're not exactly life. Um, so can you talk about how you realized that complexity could be this avenue into discovering brand new living systems after having studied complex systems that weren't alive? Yeah, definitely. My first exposure to complex systems was uh, in my third year of undergraduate studies when I was fortunate to be working on snow crystals. And I was using existing numerical models of snow crystal formation. And we all find wonder and beauty in snow crystals. And then in the spirit of kind of Richard Feynman, once you start studying them, you realize there's an additional layer of beauty in the way that the microscopic physics somehow translates to this larger scale structure and pattern in the actual snow crystal itself. And then when you realize that, at least at that time, there was still a lot of open questions about snow crystal formation, and you realize at that time when you're an undergraduate and you're going to lectures and hearing about what seemed to be established hard facts, you know, this is the Schrodinger equation and it works. <laughs> and this are Maxwell's equations and they work. And so you get this impression that 
a lot of physics is a done deal. And, so, you know, some of it is, well, actually, science is never a done deal, but you know what I mean. It's, it's a done deal for the time being. <laughs> um, and then you start seeing these open questions in these really interesting systems. And, I mean, at the time, I was... I didn't feel confident that I could make contributions to these problems. But then I had some really great advisors who would ask for my opinions on things. And I thought, wow, they, they actually value my opinions. And they said, you know, we've been working in this field for a long time. So we have preconceived notions of how to take the next steps and how to do the analysis. But because you're a student without all of those preconceptions, we're interested to hear what you have to say, because maybe you have some new ideas of how to approach these problems. And I thought, wow, I, I'm actually useful for something. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and ever since then, I've always tried to pay a lot of attention to the ideas of young students and really get their opinion on all kinds of things. But yeah, that was the first exposure to complexity. And um, well, before you go on, and- I just wanted to interject that I completely agree with what you're talking about here um, <laughs> with the uh, the valuable advisors are the ones that trust you to mm. come up with things that they haven't yet thought about. And I've had plenty of advisors who I've never really felt that trust from, or it took a really long time to get there. And when mm. it finally happened, when, <laughs> you know who I'm talking about, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> finally asked me, where do you think this project should go next? Yeah, it, yeah. I, I just couldn't answer because I was like, oh my God, you actually, what? <laughs> you want to <laughs> yeah, my yeah. opinion on what to You're, do next? Yeah. Um, the so, training wheels are off, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a groundbreaking moment or a paradigm shifting moment in my conception of myself as a scientist when that happened. I was like, mm. oh my gosh, I'm mm-hmm. maybe actually valuable at generating ideas and <laughs> taking your ideas and running with them. Um, but yeah, anyway. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, the best advisors are the ones who are best able to balance that that trust while being able to guide on steering things in the right direction when necessary yeah and so after i finished my undergrad i went back to snow crystals again worked on a slightly different project but again there was a difference between the macro scale emergent properties i mean in this case it was snow surfaces and you know the individual parts of those systems and there's this mysterious mapping between what's happening at the smaller scale or the microscopic scale and these larger macroscopic scales and the more you study complexity the more you realize that these are not special cases it actually applies to everything so chemistry for example emerges from quantum mechanics and and that mapping that emergent mapping is still not fully understood as far as i'm aware unless someone unless someone has done a comprehensive derivation of chemistry from quantum mechanics and maybe they have, and I don't know about it, but it's certainly not a trivial task. So there's emergence all around us. And there's this very interesting and sometimes mysterious transformation of a set of properties at one scale and a new set of properties at another. And I think that will be an enchanting and enticing idea for the rest of my life. I feel like there'll always be interesting problems to work on in that area for hundreds of years if not longer and out of all these examples of emergence i think life is you know the quintessential one 
I mean, there's huge complexity already at the microscopic level. Even if you're looking at individual molecules, there's amazing evolutionary design features at the microscopic scale. And then at the cellular scale and the scale of organs and whole organisms, and then ecosystems and biospheres, you're getting this emergence of so many different levels of behavior and properties. And there are so many different constraints and dynamical forces at these different layers. And so I think for me, that's a lifelong pursuit, really, to try and make sense of some of these processes of emergence. Absolutely. You know, you talk about emergence and complexity and life and the intersection between all those three things. It's uh, it's uh, really reminiscent of something that Lieutenant Commander Data said <laughs> on an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. So why yeah. don't we go ahead and play that? Um, <laughs> Definitely. This is a cross-section of my positronic net, and this is a schematic of the connection nodes linking the ship's systems. I believe some sort of neural matrix is forming on the ship. It is still relatively primitive, but it is an intelligence nonetheless. How could that happen? I believe it is an emergent property. Explain. Complex systems can sometimes behave in ways that are entirely unpredictable. The human brain, for example, might be described in terms of cellular functions and neurochemical interactions. But that description does not explain human consciousness, a capacity that far exceeds simple neural functions. Consciousness is an emergent property. In other words, something that's more than just the sum of its parts. Exactly. How does that explain what's happening to the Enterprise? The Enterprise contains a vast database of information which is managed by a sophisticated computer. This complex system gives the ship many of the characteristics of a biological organism. It's true. It sees with its sensors and talks with its communication systems. In a sense, it almost reproduces with the replicators. And you think that the ship has somehow gone beyond these functions? It's developing a new capacity? Yes, sir. I believe a self-determining intelligence is emerging. So yeah. that was a clip from the season seven episode of Star Trek The Next Generation called Emergence. Mm. Um, and here we see data bridging the idea of complex systems with intelligence, saying that an individual's consciousness is an emergent property of the complex system that is someone's neural network, be it a human's neural network or an android's positronic brain or the enterprise's computer. So mm. I was wondering, Stuart, can you do one better than computer <laughs> data and explain the connection between complexity and life at the planetary scale? Yeah, I'll do my best. Uh, <laughs> it's big shoes to fill. I would definitely, um, it's fun to see data giving complexity science 101, especially given when that was written, a lot of those ideas about emergence are relatively recent. And so I think it's a testament to the amazing writing of Star Trek that they gave such a comprehensive and accurate depiction of emergence all the way back there. So what is the connection between planetary complexity and life and emergence? I think it relates to several things simultaneously. So the first being that in order to generate complexity in a system that would otherwise tend towards simplicity, so we know that isolated systems tend towards simplicity, equilibrium, that's the second law of thermodynamics. And so as a prerequisite for any system 
to become complex or to increase in complexity, it definitely has to be driven away from equilibrium. So there need to be flows of a free energy of some kind. So in the case of planets, it's often a flow of UV photons, for example, or a spectrum of high energy photons. And then the planet will be giving off the same amount of radiation in higher entropy photons later on. So as a prerequisite for this complexity, we need some kind of thermodynamic driving force. And then in context of thermodynamic driving forces, you might ask how and why should a system become more complex? And obviously that is probably the big question of complexity science and still very much open. And there are a lot of different candidate answers out there. But it seems to me that the answer perhaps lies in self-amplifying feedbacks between learning systems and learnable features and modifications of their environment. So we can imagine forms of life, like simple forms of life, which may or may not, may not count as life, where they're not capable of learning about their environment or making predictions and so forth. And for those types of systems, you can imagine they would basically get stuck in terms of complexity because all of the driving forces would eventually be matched by some flows of free energy and it would come into some kind of dynamic equilibrium and the system would probably stop there. But in the context of systems which could express some kind of learning ability or some kind of predictive capacity, so if the potential for learning is there, and if there's also a feedback, some kind of feedback between the ability to learn and predict and the persistence of that learning system, then there's the potential for learning itself to be amplified. So biologists in general think of Darwinian evolution as carrying out that process. So the modification of genes via natural selection can be thought of as a form of learning and natural selection provides the, the feedback which stabilizes the presence of high fitness genes. But I think we can probably try to generalize that idea to one in which a learning system which starts to comprehend its environment. And, you know, at the beginning, this might be some accidental fluctuation, which creates a configuration of the system where there's some very low level of learning capacity that can be expressed. But then when that learning capacity is expressed and the environment sort of rewards that learning capacity almost and exhibits a selection pressure for that learning capacity, that becomes a uh, increased level of robustness and proliferation for the learning system. So then we have this learning system, which is prospering as a result of its learning capacity. And with time, and I think we can say this with some generality, the presence of all of those learning systems are going to start to have an impact on the environment. So if it's a population of organisms and they're consuming some source of free energy, eventually the availability of that free energy is potentially going to diminish. And in addition, their predictions of the environment may start to become a bit less accurate than they were at the beginning because the environment that they learned to predict is no longer the same. Mm -hmm. And so at this, at this stage, again, if the system has some capacity for increasing its learning ability, and maybe it doesn't, and it stops there, you know, might get stuck. But if there is that potential for elevating 
the predictive capacity of the learning system even more. And if we do still have this feedback where the environment has exploitable resources available, if you can express this more sophisticated model of the environment or predictive capacity, then again, we're going to get another increase in the sophistication of the learning system, which would eventually lead to more modifications of the environment. So environmental complexity would increase, the living systems complexity would increase. And I think at least in principle, that that feedback between environmental prediction, environmental modification could be a source of open-ended complexity increases. And in the case of planets, it could be strongly related to not just predicting what happens in your environment, but also being able to instantiate negative feedbacks which stabilize the environment. Because I think we have reasonable evidence to suggest that many planets would have a tendency, have a natural tendency to fall into climate extremes. If we think of Venus, where it's extremely hot, and Mars lost its atmosphere and it's very cold. And I think it's reasonable to suggest that in the absence of biological regulation, Earth's climate may also have gone to one of these extremes, and it may still. So I think in general, there is this potential coupling between environmental prediction, modification, and learning. And I would suggest this is quite a strong association that should generalize to other forms of life, even if the chemical details of those other forms of life uh, are very different. And that's one of the reasons I love Star Trek and I love that episode in particular is because they were in general not constrained by assuming that life, alien life is going to be very similar. I mean, of course, there's plenty of alien species in Star Trek, which are very similar to us, but there's also more than a handful of life forms which are very, very different, instantiated in different media, in different realms. And I think it was very insightful to assume that one of the most important conserved properties of life is this self-awareness, self-protection, and processing of external information. Mm -hmm. So the connection between life and complexity is basically through learning and this feedback Mm. where the more you can learn, the more complex you can become, and the more complex you are, the better you can learn. And also you brought up the idea that there might be some kind of homeostasis involved too. The more complex you are, perhaps the more robust you are to perturbations that might destroy you, that might ruin your habitat, things like that at at, at a large scale. Maybe the Vulcans, instead of saying live long and prosper, should say learn lots and prosper. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I guess they've got a tacit assumption. There's an unwritten uh, association there between living and learning. Given their uh, studiousness, that's probably a reasonable reasonable (laughs) assumption for them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. So back to your paper. Now that we've established the connection between planetary complexity and and life, uh, you've basically developed a method, a new method to calculate the statistical complexity of a planet using something called epsilon machine reconstruction. And I know that those are all real <laughs> words, but honestly, this sounds like a like like a bunch of techno babble that somebody would say on Star Trek. I can just imagine yeah, data yeah. reporting 
Captain, scans of the planet reveal an Epsilon machine reconstruction statistical complexity biosignature. <laughs> My so. dream come true. <laughs> okay. I may so. actually, I may literally have dreamt that at some point. <laughs> well, um, for those of us who have never heard of these words before, using as little jargon as possible, could you explain what statistical complexity is and what an Epsilon machine is? Definitely. Roughly speaking, statistical complexity is a measure of the size and information content of the smallest, most optimal model for a set of measurements. And I will go into details about all of that. So complexity as a concept is quite intuitive for the most part. We often associate it with things which are difficult to understand, difficult to make sense of, or maybe have many components, many interacting components with interactions between them that are difficult to decipher. And the question is, can we quantify that intuitive notion of complexity? And this has been studied and researched for a very long time. And the realm of computer science has several definitions, working definitions of complexity, like the Kolmogorov complexity, which basically measures the size of the smallest tape that you could put into a Turing machine to produce your given output, the output that you want. So it essentially measures compressibility of a process. Now, the statistical complexity is somewhat different because it relies upon having a simple model of the thing that you're interested in. And so the question is, what is the most rational way to build a simple model of some measurements that you've made? And I think this is a very important question that doesn't really get asked because we have like established bodies of physical theory, which are accurate by virtue of their empirical precision and the fact that all the experiments are consistent with them. But you could still ask the question of, for example, when James Clerk Maxwell was trying to figure out his famous equations, what kind of logical procedure was he using to go from his observations to his final equations. If we were to look at the big examples of the most successful physical theories and ask how did those people go from the set of observations to these very, very nice, beautiful mathematical models which explain the observations. So that was a question that was being asked by various physicists in the 1980s. And so they began working on algorithms for generating the sort of mathematically provable, most accurate and most compact models for a given set of observations. And the end result of many years of, of incredible research is this process called Epsilon machine uh, reconstruction, which is essentially where you can take a set of measurement observables that you've taken over time and use that input to this procedure, this algorithm. And the algorithm is able to assess a range of different potential models for your time series and essentially figure out the most predictive and the most compact. Now, you have, to, you have to make a few decisions when you're doing this because obviously the most accurate model for some observations might be like a huge model that would require loads of computing power to figure out. So, you know, you define some parameters in terms of how accurate you want the predictions to be and so forth. So within those constraints, these algorithms will use a well-defined mathematical procedure and they will give you these very simple, simple models, which are 
capable of producing similar outputs to the data that you started with. And those models are called epsilon machines. And technically speaking, they're finite state machines, but I will um, try, try my best to put it into a more of a real world context. So in some ways, they are similar to mechanical models of physical systems that used to be used by, for example, the ancient Greeks, I believe. So one example that I like to think about in this analogy is this amazing um, Antikythera mechanism, which is an ancient Greek like mechanical device, essentially. I think it's technically called an orary. So it's basically an analog computer. So you have a series of cogs and gears and mechanisms and wheels which are going through some mechanical procedure maybe you like wind up a spring or something or just turn it by hand and so all of these gears and wheels are sort of working together and the product of the mechanical operation of this machine is essentially a prediction of the orbits of planetary bodies and mm. uh, so there are various examples of these analog mechanical computers that were built by various ancient peoples, scientists, philosophers. And basically, those mechanisms are mechanically simulating some aspect, some crucial aspect of the physics of planetary motion. So the essence of planetary motion has been somehow captured in the interactions between all these cogs and, and gears in these devices. So there's some physical, there's some essential physical similarity or let's say mathematical similarity between those systems and a set of gravitationally interacting bodies. And so you can think of an Epsilon machine as being a very, very sophisticated sort of digital version of those types of physical model systems in the sense that the Epsilon machine goes from one state to another, to another, to another. So it has different states. I mean, they're abstract states. They're basically sort of mathematical states. And as it goes from one state to another, it passes through different transitions and there's some uncertainty in the transitions that it goes through. So that makes it different to the Ores and the Antikythera mechanism because those ancient analog computers are fully deterministic, whereas an Epsilon machine is not fully deterministic in general. It can also incorporate random processes, stochastic transitions. So the idea is that the Epsilon machine, when it's undergoing its operation, it goes from one state to the next through these various transitions, some of them are deterministic, some of them are random. And as it goes through this dynamic process, it's by design, it's recapitulating some essence of the physical system that generated the data that you started with in the very beginning. So it's designed to try and capture patterns in the data, causal patterns, in the data that you started with in the uh, Epsilon machine reconstruction process. So once you have this Epsilon machine, this predictive model, it's like a mathematical machine, basically, you can then basically look at the properties of that machine and use those properties as a proxy for properties of the original physical system that generated your data. In particular, the statistical complexity technically speaking, is a measure of the information content of that Epsilon machine. So it's making a, a ranking based on the number of states of that machine and the way in which that machine moves around those states. 
And so if you have a physical system, which is very difficult to model and requires many, many states, and when the machine is running, spends time in all different states, then the complexity will be higher. So basically those systems, which are more and more difficult to model, will produce bigger epsilon machines and higher statistical complexity. And in particular, random but simple processes end up with a low complexity because the epsilon machine reconstruction process will essentially identify that there's no causal mechanism that can help you predict the next measurement in a random series. And so it will just come back with an epsilon machine with a set of stochastic transitions, but a low number of states and hence a low complexity. So the epsilon machine process basically captures that intuitive notion of simple deterministic processes are not so complex. Simple random processes are not so complex. The most complex systems are those with many deterministic dynamics and stochastic dynamics and any combination of deterministic and stochastic processes which make modeling difficult are essentially captured in the uh, statistical complexity, which I think gives it the power that it has. I think that makes sense. Um, I've heard you explain it maybe half a dozen times now at various <laughs> different talks in colloquia. And I, I come to understand it more each time because it is a very complex phenomenon itself. Let me see if I could just yeah. recap how this works. So basically you have a series of measurements, observations of a planet, and then mm. you ask your computer to come up with a model that can recreate that data or make predictions that end up being true about what future data will be. And Mm. that model is called an epsilon machine. Mm -hmm. Then what you do is you assess the complexity of the model that was required to recreate the data and use that as a measure of the complexity of the actual environment that made that data. Exactly. Um, Okay. So in order to do this, then we need to get some data from planets. And (laughs) uh, a great place to start is Earth because To vet any biosignature technique, it's often very useful to make sure that it works on the one planet that we know yeah. has life. Um, <laughs> yeah. So for this paper, you got some Earth data from NASA's Discover mission, which I know to yeah. be a climate satellite. Yeah. It sits at one of Earth's Lagrange points and sort of just like observes our planet to see how it changes over time as we continue to inject more and more <laughs> CO2 and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So mm. tell us a little bit about how this Discover data works, what it is, and how you basically mm. repurposed this climate <laughs> observatory into a biosignature hunter. Yeah, that's a good question. As far as I'm aware, it started with Professor Jang at JPL, who was interested in using the Discover data to simulate the situation of looking at Earth from a great distance. So you can ask the question, and of course, this question is asked all the time in the biosignature field. If we're looking at Earth through the lens of a distant observer, how well can we detect life on Earth? And you would think, well, it must be easy. I mean, there's there's loads of life on Earth. It's actually kind of hard. Mm -hmm. It's harder than you might think. From a great distance, it's not obvious that there's life on Earth. So the Discover data is useful because there's a camera on the Discover satellite called the EPIC camera. And it's watching the Earth constantly. And it's taking very nice images, I think, every 30 minutes, at least least every hour, if not uh, more frequently. It's like a normal camera. It's just looking at the light coming from Earth, so which has originally come from the sun. And it's taking those pictures in 10 different wavelengths. 
basically sort of spanning the visible spectrum roughly from around 400 nanometers up to just under 800. So you have at each point in time, you have these 10 nice images of planet Earth. And so then you might think, right, if I was very far away from Earth, I wouldn't have this beautiful spatial resolution in my image. Uh, so in fact, all of those details would be averaged out by the great distance between myself and the planet. So what Professor Jiang and now Dr. Sitong Fan and other students here at Caltech were doing is recreating that process of looking at Earth from a great distance by what's called disk integrating the images into a single pixel. So you go from one image to one pixel. And if you do that for the entire set of observations, you then have, instead of 10 sets of images over time, you have 10 sets of measurements over time, 10 reflectance values over time. So then you have 10 time series. And you can ask the question, if I only have those 10 time series, what can I work out about planet Earth? Which properties of planet Earth can I get from those 10 time series? Because it seems like you might be kind of stuck. You might struggle to figure out what's going on on planet Earth just with no spatial resolution. But it turns out, actually, you can figure out quite a lot. So you can you know, look at periodic features in those time series and work out things like the Earth's rotation period and its orbital period. And then you can use what was done by Dr. Fan and, uh, and others was use machine learning techniques to, to map the values in those 10 time series to properties of the earth that we know, like the ocean fraction and the vegetation fraction. So for a given point in time, what fraction of the earth's disk is covered by clouds or ocean and so forth. And it turns out there is a way that you can derive those quantities from these, uh, one pixel images or these time series. And what Dr. Fan was even able to show is that despite having no spatial resolution on that data, there are ways that you can actually reconstruct some of the spatial features like the shape of continents from those time series. So in the end, the answer is, well, you can actually extract quite a lot of information about planet Earth from this disk integrated data. And so back in 2018, I think it was, Dr. Jang presented this work and posed the question of, you know, is there enough information in these time series to detect life? Is there a way that the presence of life is somehow buried in that signal, that coarse grain signal? And so being familiar with epsilon machine reconstruction and complexity science in general, it seemed like a logical step to try and measure the complexity of those time series and just see whether there was any correlation with planetary features. And, uh, you know, after a lot of hard work, great work from Dr. Fan and um, other students like Li Shanggu and um, Zhao Zhongli and all of our collaborators, Lana Sinapayan, who works for Sony in Japan, with a lot of help from a great team, we were able to take different versions of those images of Earth where you remove certain features like remove clouds or remove surface features and basically simplify the planet and then look at how the planetary complexity changes when you do that. And it turns out that actually there are four qualitative groups of planetary types with this Earth data that can be distinguished when you measure complexity and entropy rate. So if you start with the original data, you have a relatively high value of complexity and entropy. And as you when you change the surface features, so if you, for example, use ideal values for 
the pixels for different surface types, but you retain clouds and multiple surface features, you get relatively high complexity. And then as you take away features, so if, for example, you simplify the surface, but you leave the clouds, then you get another group of slightly less complex planets. And if you go a bit further and take away the clouds completely, but you leave the surface complexity, you go down another sort of scale in complexity and entropy. And then at the very bottom of our sort of scale where you have one surface type and no clouds, then you have another group of very low complexity, low entropy planets. And so at that point, it seemed clear that the complexity of those time series was actually capturing real qualitative complexity in our simulated planets. And so th at that point, I think it was, it was clear that computational mechanics could offer us a really powerful technique for planetary assessment. And then in the context of biosignatures, I mean, of course, the fact that Earth's complexity was highest compared to its simpler close relatives is not a surprise. So we wanted to compare with a non-living planet, which ended up being Jupiter because we had the best data for Jupiter. And we found that, I mean, obviously there are constraints and limitations on the, the data quality that we're using, but within those constraints, Earth's complexity was roughly 47% higher than Jupiter's. So far, 47%. Of course, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, yeah. and Jupiter is a very complex beast itself. I mean, it may <laughs> not have life as we know it, mm -hmm. uh, but just look at the images that Juno is beaming mm -hmm. back to us these days. These amazing yeah. cloud features storms hurricanes the size of earth you know yeah. i initially if you if you showed me earth and then you showed me these beautiful pictures of jupiter from our spacecraft and asked me mm. to just qualitatively compare their complexities mm. i might not know which one to pick so yeah, it's really amazing true. that you did the quantitative work to show and indeed you did show that mm. earth is actually more complex mm. than jupiter is yeah exactly it seemed like Jupiter was a great contender for, you know, taking the complexity crown. As you say, there are lots of very interesting and complex cloud features on Jupiter. And so it's a reasonable question to ask, you know, why, why couldn't Jupiter score as high as Earth on the complexity scale? And of course, the complete answer to that question, we're still figuring out and we're applying similar analyses to what we did before, where we, where we manipulate the observable features of Jupiter and then run it through our analysis again and see how the complexity changes as a function of those differences in surface features. So, so I'm optimistic that eventually we will have some fairly concrete answers as to why a given feature on Earth has allowed Earth to express a higher observable complexity than Jupiter. I mean, you can speculate that, especially across different wavelength channels, Earth's higher complexity of surface features like land surface types plus clouds, since Jupiter is, you know, you see, you see the complex clouds uh, and that's about it. Whereas on Earth, you see clouds plus other features. And so I'm sure that probably factors in quite strongly because Earth's complexity is strongly related to its clouds, but it's not just the clouds. There's other aspects of the observable surface which are contributing to its complexity. So some combination of those additional features compared to Jupiter are, are, I think, contributing to this loss of the competition on the part of Jupiter. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting more detail on 
essentially the causal question of how do the features of a given planet cause the observable complexity values, which is very important for Earth, because in order to validate this as a biosignature technique, we would really want to establish a causal link between the presence of life and Earth's high complexity. And that is something which will require more analysis and more, more data. More data, maybe even, mm. you know, some more instances of life out there in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. If you know of any, then let me know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I guess the, the, the worry in every single type of biosignature is false negatives or false positives. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. a false negative being there is life on the planet, but for whatever reason, it didn't grow to the extent that it influenced the complexity of its surface in an observable way. And then the false positive being, you know, the case where it's a non-living planet, but it's geological or atmospheric features produce a complexity level that is equal to a living planet. And you kind of showed how if somebody like myself were worried that Jupiter was a false positive, it actually isn't. But I wonder if you want, want to talk about the false negative aspect mm -hmm. of this too. Yeah, there's definitely that possibility of quiescent biospheres, which are having a limited detectable impact on, for example, the planetary atmosphere might be subsurface life, for example. I mean, if it is the case that Perseverance is potentially detecting signatures of ancient life on Mars, there is, of course, this tantalizing possibility that we're all very excited about, that Mars has a quiescent biosphere that's a, that's a fragment or a remnant of uh, some earlier, more prolific biosphere that obviously shrank shrank down due to the drastic climate change, loss of atmosphere on Mars. Yeah, so, you know, Mars potentially could be an example of that where from a great distance, you might well conclude that there's nothing on Mars. And then if you dig down two kilometers or so, you might find the, the last kind of straggling surviving members of a once great <laughs> biosphere. Um, <laughs> So that's a possibility that we can't rule out. I think in general, for those quiescent biospheres, it's going to be extremely difficult to detect by any technique. Mm -hmm. um, because if we're, if we're able to look at atmospheric spectra, for example, and if that biosphere is buried deep under the ground with relatively limited metabolic activity, I don't think it would show up in the atmospheric spectra. So those quiescent biospheres, if they do exist, are going to pose a significant challenge uh, until we develop the warp drive. <laughs> um, so that's quite far out. I mean, it's also possible that um, if we imagine that life is prolific in the universe and we've surveyed like a good fraction of it and we've measured its complexity and we were able to look at the histogram of complexity of life in the universe, what shape might we expect that histogram to be? So one default assumption might be that the histogram just sort of slopes downwards. So there's lots of simple quiescent biospheres because it's more likely for those simpler biospheres to originate and stick around. And, you know, the growth in complexity might be quite rare and it might rely on the amplification of chance events. And so, you know, we might be quite special. So we might be in the tail of this histogram or this distribution, you know, a very fortunate consequence of a series of chance events or growths in complexity, which are not so repeatable or reproducible. 
Or alternatively, maybe the distribution is a little bit more flat. So maybe there's all kinds of, you know, different levels of complexity, some simple biosphere, some more complex. And then, of course, there might be some threshold of complexity above which there's no biospheres. So maybe, you know, the distribution at some point just sort of tails off and stops. Or alternatively, maybe there's like a single hump in this distribution. So maybe life can only exist if it reaches some threshold level of complexity. For example, as we talked about with atmospheric or environmental regulation, and any biosphere that just doesn't make it through that so-called Gaian bottleneck or that complexity bottleneck will just die back, basically. So perhaps, yeah, this, this histogram of complexity, biospheric complexity is relatively low and then exhibits some kind of hump at this sort of typical biospheric complexity level and then drops down again. And then, you know, we might be, we might be in the middle of the hump or to the left or to the right, who knows? I mean, I have some a sneaking suspicion that given all of these feedbacks that we see in the biological world, that when life does start and if it does get through some of these initial bottlenecks, once you've got through the main bottlenecks, you probably have the capacity to get through more. Uh, that's just my sort of intuitive feeling. So, so I, I have a feeling it might be the sort of single hump histogram. Which would be good because it means they're easier to detect. Then that means that the bulk of life out there is easier to detect. Yeah. So yeah. I might be being over optimistic. Only time will tell. And um, yeah. So and false positives, of course, very difficult to rule out. It's a similar issue for all biosignature techniques. For any given detection, maybe there's some non-living process which can generate the same signal. How do we know that only life could have made that signal? And um, in some cases, there has been this association with molecular complexity, for example. So if a, if a detected molecule is really difficult to make or if it takes many steps to make, then above some threshold, we can say, yep, it must be life. There, mm -hmm. there can be no other explanation. But calculating those thresholds, and the same applies for our technique, calculating those thresholds is very difficult. And as we assess more planets, as we understand complex abiotic chemistry better and lo and behold if we could ever get the second biosphere example we'll gradually get a grip on on those questions i can definitely see how it will be very difficult to figure out what that thresholds complexity is where you can say above this definitely life below this maybe life, maybe not life, mm. especially when mm. we only have one example, right? And so mm. we think maybe it's somewhere um, between where Earth is and where Jupiter is, but say you did find another planet that is like right in the middle between Earth and Jupiter, you know, what, what is, mm. is, is that mm. life or is that not mm. life that is just more <laughs> complex than Jupiter is? Um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's going to be <laughs> a wild ride and a, 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 a whole career's worth of research to do. Maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. One thing that I just wanted to touch on at the end here is that the power of this complexity technique, I think really lies in its um, quote unquote agnostic nature that it can mm. spot life that is truly new, truly different, truly alien from us. And, you know, Starfleet's mission in Star Trek is to explore <laughs> strange new worlds and to seek out new life, new civilizations. Uh, and oftentimes, mm. as you said at the beginning, this can take the form of life as we know it, but it can also take the form of life that is completely different from us. Uh, and mm. so how do you think this new 
technique that you've developed will complement existing biosignature techniques? I mean, my hope is that will that it will fit in as a really good team player, basically, alongside the rest of the team. And we need that team to be as diverse as possible. That is our best chance of not missing things, avoiding false positives and false negatives. And so I can well imagine scenarios where, let's say we detect a uh, high planetary complexity and we're very excited, but then we are able to point one of our, let's say, very sophisticated exoplanet missions at this planet with a high complexity. And then from the molecular signatures of that planet, we just find nothing significant. For example, we don't find any significant atmospheric disequilibria. We don't find any uh, large molecules. And so maybe, you know, complexity assessment has said yes, and all of the other techniques have said no. Then think it's reasonable to say, you know, we can move on to the next planet. And likewise, maybe, maybe we detect an interesting molecule in the atmosphere of an exoplanet. So we decide to watch the exoplanet for a little while. And, uh, and we detect that, in fact, its complexity is actually really low. And then maybe that allows us to consider abiotic pathways for the generation of that complex molecule that we've detected. And so maybe through some combination of those techniques, and perhaps it could even be formalized into some larger sort of Bayesian-based planetary assessment tool. And so eventually, again, if, if we continue this amazing progress in launching exoplanet missions, and we can start to integrate large amounts of data from a range of exoplanets, and we input all of this information into, into our sort of comprehensive multi-method uh, biosignature assessment framework. And then in the end, or let's say periodically, the, uh, <laughs> the enterprise computer says, well, the numbers are just in on the most recent 500 exoplanets we've assessed. We've factored everything in. We've looked at complexity. We've looked at molecular signatures. And, you know, planet 458C73J looks really good. It's scoring really high on everything. You really should go there and take a look. <laughs> and we can gradually... <laughs> We can gradually sort of work our way through the uh, the rankings, and um, yeah, and try and get the details required to uh, to make that first that first um, positive identification. Hopefully, yeah, yeah, definitive detection, right? I think you're absolutely <laughs> right. It'll take a whole team working together from different angles, using different techniques, and basing that those techniques on different expertise to really definitively yeah. say that we found life out there. Exactly. Again, you see that in Star Trek. None of these very predicaments that they end up in are solved. You know, it's not like data is just figuring out everything on his own. There's a role for everyone to play and science. Science is exactly the same. Absolutely. Yeah. So I know we were joking earlier that um, Epsilon machine reconstruction statistical complexity biosignature sounds like techno babble <laughs> that someone on Star Trek would say. But, you know, you've just so shown that this is a real thing, that this could be one of those major tools that we use to look for life out there in the universe. And you know how Star Trek is so often inspired by real science. So my last question to you is, <laughs> imagine you're watching a brand new episode of Star Trek on TV and some science officer yeah. was ordered to scan a planet. And they say... <laughs> Captain, we're detecting an epsilon machine reconstruction to statistical complexity yeah, biosignature. Yeah. It's going <laughs> how high. You, how it's going feel? through the 
Yeah. I'm like, I think I'd pass out probably. I'd probably faint. <laughs> <laughs> I would feel like a lifelong, uh, lifelong ambitions had been more than validated. I think at that point, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't know what to say. Yeah, I can't think of any any higher sort of accolade to be honest. And I think that's what is so awesome about Star Trek is that there's really a, like a two-way feedback, I think, in the sense that science can inspire the writers and producers to come up with new ideas. And it also, I think it also works the other way. You can, you can put out crazy ideas in a fictional storyline like that. And even if they're kind of off the mark in some ways compared to reality, as a source of inspiration and as an additional source of novelty it can be extremely powerful and um it's a continuing definitely a continuing source of inspiration inspiration for me so yeah if one day i can be involved that would be amazing <laughs> or if or if the ideas can be involved i should say that would be that would be super awesome well cbs paramount i hope you're <laughs> listening <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very good. Well, thanks yeah. for joining me again on Strange New World, Stuart. It was really, really fun as always. Uh, oh, it's been fantastic. I'm very grateful to be uh, back and chatting as always. It's always, it's always good fun. Stuart is one of my favorite people to talk to because every time we speak, I feel like my mind gets stretched in new and unexpected ways. I not only learn things by chatting with Stuart, he's one of those people whose presence seems to make generating new ideas easier. And in science, that's a quality you really value in a colleague. But even more important than that, I find Stuart's attitude towards science simply inspiring. I love that he sees his planetary complexity biosignature as just the latest recruit on a team whose goal is to collectively find evidence for life elsewhere in the universe. It's this humble open-mindedness that impresses me so much, especially in a field like astrobiology, where egos are abound. Others in Stuart's shoes might be proclaiming from the mountaintops, I've just developed the greatest biosignature technique, it's my way, or the highway. But not him. And I think Stewart's attitude is evinced by what he said at the beginning of the show, how he values the input of students. Because everyone, especially young people, can bring fresh ideas to the table, something that we always need in science. You know, after we stopped recording, Stuart and I stayed online for another hour chatting about new science ideas and also raving about the amazing students that we each get to work with. So I hope you learned something new today about the interplay between complexity, planets, and life. If you're curious to read more, I've put a link to Stuart's paper in the show notes, as well as a news article about it written for Inverse. Thanks, as always, for listening to Strange New Worlds. And until next time, see you out there.